So there was an evolution and some training there, but I, I will say the rideshare companies laid some of the groundwork with both sides, the, the supply and the demand to say, hey, there's value here. Something's going on. You better find a way to get on the train or you're going to get left behind. Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. On this episode of Transform It Forward, I'm sitting down with Jason Gross, the Vice President of Mobility at Curb, a company that's reimagining urban mobility. Curb is bringing the largest nationwide network of taxis and licensed for hire vehicles into today's age. With the ride hailing and upfront pricing we've now all grown accustomed to, the company provides unparalleled transparency to riders and drivers alike, facilitating billions of dollars in payment transactions annually through its open mobility platform. I'm sitting down with Jason today to discuss innovation in the taxi industry and how they can help taxis compete with Uber and Lyft. Jason, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So very few people probably realize that the taxi business was the original platform business where you had a dispatch from a central point delivering services from a large ecosystem of providers. How has it evolved over the course of the last, I would imagine, 50 years? Yeah, I mean, it started with radio calls, right? So there were people with little CBs in their car and they would be having dispatcher, you know, crackle over that. They'd hold the little device up to their mouth, click the button and talk back like you see in old movies. And it really was very manual, you know, beyond that. The use of technology was very limited. So you really had this idea of a dispatcher may not know where a vehicle is. They're getting a call in. They may know where someone is habitually or write it down on a piece of paper or give someone a paper shift log. And it was really kind of hand-to-hand combat, you know, as it were, in terms of fulfilling rides. And so when you think about it, it has, as it evolved and as there was, you know, more need for it in, in the major metropolitan areas, how did the internet get past the industry, it seems? Well, it's interesting because it didn't, it didn't. You know, so actually we here at Curb had our genesis maybe 30 plus years ago in terms of bringing credit cards online for taxicab. So it used to be, if you remember, I'm old enough to do so, when you wanted to pay with a credit card, someone had a, what they called the knuckle buster, right? And they had to put a piece of carbon paper on over the card, slide it back and forth. And in terms of fraud, they would look up a book and they, you know, thousands upon thousands of numbers, and they'd have to find if the number was on the blacklist. And then when all that's done, at the end of the day, they turn in all these receipts to someone who would then go have to process them. And what our company actually did was create one of the first online networks for allowing someone to swipe a credit card in a cab and actually process that in real time. So in some way, there was a real tech forwardness to this. And even with respect to dispatch software, some of that made great leaps in evolution. But what was missing was this idea of an aggregation of supply. So as you mentioned, I think earlier, you you had a, a phone number you could call. And that phone number belonged to a company, and that company might have as few as five vehicles, as, as many as 500. But you know, in these urban areas, it's an enormous amount of, of ground to cover with such a small number of vehicles. And I think what the industry you know, failed to foresee was that there would be ostensibly other options, right? There would be something that would provide users with an ability to book from a much larger pool of vehicles and actually to track where the vehicle was rather than having to call that phone number back and say, hey, 
my vehicle's late, when's it going to be here? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I did a startup years and years ago that um, would have looked exactly like Yelp, but it was five years before Yelp, and there wasn't necessarily the infrastructure to support it in a grand scale, so it didn't work. And when you think about it, you know, the first time that people looked at the business plan for Uber, you know, the black cars only in San Francisco, I would imagine they probably thought this is ridiculous. Why would you get in the back of anybody, you know, any stranger's car, you know, that doesn't have the medallion attached to the hood? Was it a little bit of hubris because of the scale or was it really that it was just it exploded so fast that all of a sudden you're at a, at a disadvantage because of a tech first approach as opposed to a supply first approach? Yeah, I think there were a couple things that caught the industry off guard. You know, one was the ability of a company to do a complete end run around regulation, right? You know, regulation had evolved over a, a long period of time, primarily to ensure public safety, then to, on the other side, ensure a fair living wage for drivers, you know, and keep the kind of idea of Boy, I don't want to use the word, but those unlicensed vehicles that come with signs to the airport saying, hey, take me, you know, and accosting you on the street. And they wanted to bring this into some sort of accountability to the public. So taxi meters, for example, to make sure that you're paying a fair price. And I think over time, you know, like many regulators do, they become sort of captive to the industry they support. And I believe the industry sort of felt that they were going to protect themselves for very good reasons, right? All those regulations existed for a reason. And I think they felt they'd be insulated from someone going sort of wild west in the market by the regulations themselves. And I think what they didn't foresee was the ability of a company to organize itself through social media and through intensive lobbying and throw enormous amounts of venture capital at a problem that for once put the taxi owners and the fleets at an economic disadvantage versus the startups. So you combine that with fundamentally providing a better service. And you, know, you can say that that's built on quicksand in the sense that they were so heavily subsidizing rides. So you were paying for half your ride and venture capital is paying for the other half. And when you take a, a market that, let's say in New York, you had 13,000 plus licensed medallions and you throw 100,000 vehicles in there, of course, you're going to be closer on average to a passenger. So you have this idea of artificially low ETAs, artificially low prices, and giving that sort of accountability and transparency to a user of where their vehicle is exactly what they're going to pay in advance, price surging notwithstanding, the surge pricing notwithstanding, I should say. But you really created enough differentiation in what the customer experience was to make people wake up and say, hey, you know, why wouldn't I want a taxi ride for half the price and have it here in five minutes and see where it is the whole way to and from? So when you think about the question you asked earlier about why would someone get into a car they don't know whether or not it's licensed, I think some of that capability of seeing it on a map, you know, created some level of comfort that you were in control, right, of that experience. And I think that went a long way towards getting people to try something that fundamentally was underregulated. Um, from a variety of perspectives. I think your point is really prescient about the regulation. You know, typically we we talk about transformation and sometimes regulation is the stimulant that makes it happen. Okay, well, something's changing. Open banking, for example, is changing or or data privacy laws in Australia are changing. And it forces people to kind of create a new way. In this case, it almost looked like they looked at the regulations and said the space is in the area outside the regulations and let's build a company around that. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know if the, you know they started out thinking that way, but they certainly threw caution to the wind in terms of feeling invulnerable, feeling like they had, uh, like a lot of disruptors out of second, uh, Silicon Valley, they felt like they had the customer on their side. And at the end of the day, they could unleash this force of massive, you know, social media enabled lobbying in effect to cow the regulators and the city administrators. And if the city didn't bow to that sort of new way of doing business, they would go to the state. And if it wasn't the state, they would go somewhere else. And so they were very, not just aggressive, but unwilling to stop, right? And by that, I mean that they would keep going, they would find a way, they would threaten to leave, they would leave, they would come back. But it was really a take no prisoners approach to building a business. And it's very hard for you know an industry that has been born of, in some ways, regulation, right? You know, they're very hand in hand in terms of making certain there's a limit to the number of vehicles on the road for two reasons, right? One is congestion, right? And the, the impact on everybody else in the city who wants to get around. Another one is the ability to make sure that professional drivers, people who do this for a living, are earning a fair wage, right? And if you were to flood the streets with taxi cabs and each driver therefore took 50% fewer rides in a day, it impacts people's ability to survive economically on the fare structure. So there are a lot of interlocking pieces that get blown up when you, you know, when you are able to ignore them for a prolonged period of time. And so the taxi industry still has 200,000 or so drivers that are out there, or at least medallions that people capture across the big, you know, global marketplace. How does Curb help bring that into, you know, a more organized ecosystem that can then add the services that are driving the experience that people love about rideshare, which is now food delivery and alcohol delivery and small package delivery and, and all the transparency that you talked about earlier. Yeah. I, you know, so I think as we, we spoke about the taxi industry needed to come to grips with two things. One is that, you know, cab company A and cab company B in the same city are not in a fight to the death battle over each and every rider that there's a pie of taxi rides that they need to, to some degree, at least cooperate in growing, right? And some invested heavily in their brands and they would say, my fleet has higher quality vehicles, it's cleaner, my drivers are better trained, and there's definitely value there. But I think what ride sharing did was a couple of things. They brought the, the base level of quality of service up, right? That it was demanded that drivers and fleets needed to invest further than they had and making sure the customer experience was on par with what they had come to expect. They needed to be able to cooperate. But on top of that, they had this sort of fragmented technology. So they all had these different dispatch systems. Some were from the same vendor, but had been highly customized to the way that individual fleet operated. And so the ability to aggregate them under a single platform and say, hey, there are you know, 3,000 cabs in the city. They're on five different systems. But when I, as a user, want a taxi, I'm comparing taxi to a rideshare vehicle, and I'm a little less concerned over which particular taxi company it is, but and we'll get to this in a moment. I want a taxi. I want what a taxi represents in one way or another, but I want it to get here fast. And so they needed to have a, a platform that integrated across these various technologies and aggregated the supply to create those better ETAs. Uh, you needed a tech company able to invest in the consumer facing platform, right? What in this case, we'd call it the app that says, hey, the app has table stakes in terms of 
functionality and transparency into the location of the vehicle, uh, you know, putting the control in the user's hands. Third, I think you just needed users to become aware of this option and have it at a competitive price. And so I think a lot of things have aligned. What we've been able to do is provide that technology layer that aggregates all of the supply. Supply things like recently launching upfront pricing. So instead of giving you an estimate of what a meter might be for a particular trip, you're able to see that with Curb, a taxi costs $20. At this particular moment, the other rideshare apps cost $30 and $35. And you may have remembered that you know, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world are half the price of a taxi, but now you can see all of a sudden that no, actually, you know, many points throughout the day, especially during, you know, rush hour, a taxi is significantly cheaper than a rideshare. And the ETA may be very similar and you can get that same customer experience that you've grown to expect from a rideshare app, but with a taxi. There's nothing more infuriating on the rideshare side when they say uh, it'll be there in five minutes and then the driver accepts the ride and they say as soon as they're done completing the trip they're on. So that may be one for the product development team to push back into the ecosystem. So so is it is it a, is it a case where kind of bringing it up to parity to 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 organize the ecosystem in a way where the suppliers can then compete on at least the the deliverability of the experience, then you can start adding different things to make it more beneficial for the drivers? Or how, how does it bring the, the benefit of the 200,000 plus committed professional drivers that uh, have been doing this for a living for them? We've always been thinking about how do we play a role in making the ecosystem function better. And so originally that was you know, taxi meters, credit card processing, dispatch systems, but it was never incumbent upon us as a company to generate demand because the, the taxi companies themselves had all the demand they could handle, right? I mean, that was one of the results of, of regulation, the capping of licenses in an individual city. And, you know, we're not venture-backed. We're, we're definitely a, a profitability-focused company from day one. But what we are able to do is create a brand that is in some ways synonymous with taxis in the market we operate in, markets we operate in, and expose those options to users and, and also other stakeholders. So when I spoke earlier about the fact that taxis are really in partnership with the local regulators, you, know, you look at municipalities and transit agencies that have transportation problems to solve, and they have a vested interest in making certain that the taxi industry stays alive. And so when they have trips they need to fill, they also need a platform that gives them all the same benefits of aggregated supply, good ETAs, a technology layer. And, you know, we have a full operations team and call center to lay on top of that. So we were also able to bring government sector rides to taxis that they couldn't participate in before. Um, healthcare sector rides that they couldn't participate in before because they either didn't have the scale or they didn't have the resources to fill all the needs of the end customer, whether it be a transit agency a public hospital, a private hospital, even a corporation that, you know, you remember may have a black car service and old school vouchers in terms of moving their people around. So what we were able to do was look at the areas of the market where taxis were an under leveraged piece of the transportation infrastructure, make those connections and really just give drivers rides, which they completed with all the other technology that we had long been giving them. But we took a this quantum leap into saying we have a role to play in creating demand for the industry. And that was a hole that no one was filling or not filling successfully. And that's really where we've been able to make strides to 
you know, keeping the drivers engaged, keeping the fleets in operation, you know, even through the pandemic for that matter, and continuing to invest with them and listening to them as stakeholders and making certain that they're earning a fair wage. So when you think about this, and we all talked earlier about a taxi meter, what a taxi driver believes is a fair price to the taxi driver for any individual trip is the meter. So we use complex algorithms looking at time and distance and traffic, and we're really trying to recreate that same earning expectation for the driver, pass that on to the customer at a reasonable price. And five years ago, you know that price was substantially higher than what ride shares were offering, and now it's not. Um, and it's really just putting them in a position, especially as driver supply and ETAs and pricing are all problematic for rideshare users and they're looking for another option. I'm just putting the industry in a position to succeed as people's eyes are open to other options has been, you know, the challenge for us. I think we've been relatively successful at meeting that challenge and the industry as a whole is, is benefiting from that. It's recovering faster than rideshare. It would seem to me that COVID would have hit the taxis harder than than the Ubers of the world because of the uh, of the other things that were more profit contributing to the Uber business, right? Delivery and food food delivery and things like that. How do, how you know what's the state of the taxi business and the medallion owners at this point after eighteen months of sitting on the sidelines or at least being quiet, more quiet? Yeah, you know it's interesting that you mention those things. I think certainly from a rideshare a driver perspective. You know, for a lot of them, it wasn't their full-time job. It was something they did on the side to make extra money. So that's very easy for someone to say, I don't want to do that right now, whether it's the lack of demand or a risk aversion. Um, taxi drivers oftentimes own their own medallion. They are doing this as a career. So they're looking to come back as quickly as possible. And what we actually did during the pandemic is we moved essential workers around, right? Whether it was the public hospital workers who needed to get from site to site, people with the criminal justice system, the emergency management organizations, as I mentioned, the public hospitals, the Taxi Limousine Commission in New York stood up their own program to do food delivery with taxi drivers. So I think, you know, taxi drivers have sort of been in this for the long haul and they definitely consider themselves, they take pride in being an important part of the community and the infrastructure of the city. So historically going back to September 11th and before, you know, the taxis have kind of taken this pride in riding to the rescue, forgive the pun, in terms of helping the city stay on its feet. So you definitely did see a lot of people with health concerns, again, with a decreased earnings potential go off the road, but it didn't go to zero. And it's actually come back from everything I read in the you know earnings reports from Uber and Lyft. It's and what I see in my own data, the number of drivers on the road has rebounded a lot faster and some of that, as you said, may be because some of the rideshare drivers, at least for the moment, would prefer to do food delivery, right? And the taxi drivers are still going to drive a taxi. And while there are package and food delivery and staff transportation things still going on as part of the pandemic, they're in this to earn money. And this is their, their livelihood in the profession. And they're probably less likely to switch professions in light of the pandemic and the other opportunities that have presented themselves. So Curb enters the market over, to, you know, it's a, the 20-year overnight success that you talk about. Right. But um, you bring something that allows you to have functional parity and to actually compete. How then do you disrupt the disruptors? How do you, how do you take a step beyond? 
Sure. I think what we've succeeded at is finding niches where they're less interested or less likely to successfully compete. So when I talked a little bit about healthcare work, you know, I know they're in that space. But what I also know is finding drivers who are comfortable taking disabled passengers, right? And by comfortable, I simply mean they're used to it. They are a little bit skilled in dealing with safety and sensitivity issues that are unique to individual segments of the community or, you know, wheelchair accessible vehicles, right? You know, having those on the road, the regulation is provided for a substantial supply of wheelchair accessible vehicles for taxis where they haven't had the same regulatory muscle to push that upon rideshare drivers. And how many people own a wheelchair accessible vehicle as their personal car that they want to drive for a rideshare company three hours a day, right? So you look for those areas and they're unique functionality. So for example, something we rolled out, we call parent pay, which is an ability to take the curb app and get into the first cab in the taxi line at the airport, but still pair with that vehicle and turn it into a rideshare ride. And what I mean by that is at the end of the ride, it knows what card you want to use. It knows what tip you want to give. It sends you the receipt. And so creating technology solutions for use cases where taxis make more sense you know, enables you to protect that and give someone that option of saying, hey, the, the fastest way for me to get from point A to B is to walk out onto the street and hail with my hand, but I still want X, Y, and Z. And I was willing to give those up if my only option were to hail a rideshare vehicle. But if I don't have to do that, um, I prefer to take a taxi. During the pandemic, taxis have partitions. You know, certain people feel safer and not just with respect to COVID, but just in general, you know, having a separation between themselves and the driver and, and vice versa for that matter. And looking at the ability to say, hey, the pricing is going to be consistent. It's not this sort of pull of the slot machine wheel, you know, every time I need transportation and try to figure out if it's three sevens and I'm paying $20 for the ride or if it's not and I'm going to pay 50 today. Right. And so I think what the pandemic has done is opened people's eyes up to the idea that you don't have to take that giant high price right now because there's still a taxi and a taxi is going to be basically the same price it always is. And I can get it with that same parity experience that I want from a technology perspective. So I think all of those things from the consumer side help up. And from a sustainability side, our business model is different. Right. We provide solutions, not just to drivers, but to vehicles. So when you think about a taxi cab in the morning, one driver may drive it in the evening, another driver may drive it. Three days later, one of those drivers decides this isn't for them. Another driver comes in and we're not paying an acquisition cost for the driver. We've kitted out the vehicle. So as long as there's a licensed driver driving in that licensed vehicle, our cost model is significantly lower in terms of having a vehicle on the road on the curb platform, right? We work with taxi owners and taxi fleets. So they're in the business of recruiting and maintaining vehicles and drivers. We really are that technology company that the ride shares have often claimed to be where we only provide that layer. So that's interesting because a lot of times what we see is from a transformation success perspective that it has everything to do with culture and change management, right? How do you get people to want to do things differently? How do you get them to keep doing things differently, embrace it for all the value that, you know, the PowerPoint said that it was going to have? In this particular case, you you have far fewer people to get that, and they recognize economically immediately that they don't have a choice but to do this. So it isn't like, hey, I have to retrain and convince 
you know, 200,000 taxi drivers that, you know, doing this app-based approach is a better approach because if they want to drive the cab, that's just how it is. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there has been no convincing involved, right? I mean, people are still creatures of habit and there are some drivers who are real hustlers in the sense that they like the chase. And so they left for rideshare and they have three or four different, well, when three or four different apps existed, they have them all on their phone. And we definitely have some of those people who want to be on our platform, but the guys that were used to doing dispatch work, it's just another kind of dispatch for them. It's coming in. Um, oftentimes, you know, the way in which they receive the job from us is more technologically advanced, maybe on a, primarily on a tablet that's installed in their car, but it runs on iOS or Android, right? And it's not um, that old CB we were talking about earlier. So it has integrated navigation. It has chat functionalities to support, not while you're driving, but the ability to click to call, you know, so a lot of things that have made that easier and then just layering in other sources of demand is a real winner. Now you take a market like New York, there was really a training and evolution because there was no such thing as dispatch for a yellow cab in New York City, right? That was the province of the black cars. There was a sort of a detente reached between the two industries and it was taxis take people on the street and these other cars take dispatch. I think the Taxi Limousine Commission, you know, in some ways, responding to the Pandora's box they opened with the rideshare companies, eased up those regulations and said, hey, you can, if you're licensed by the city and follow all the rules, right, you can actually take an app-based call and give it to a taxi driver. So there was an evolution and some training there. But I, I will say the rideshare companies laid some of the groundwork with both sides, the, the supply and the demand to say, hey, there's value here. Something's going on. You better find a way to get on the train or you're going to get left behind. Yeah, it's amazing when consumer experience starts to drive up the expectations and their behavior changes, how it forces everybody to change fast. And some there are some scenarios that that drive that consumer behavior change, but once it's going, it's it's awful tough to stop. Yeah, and I, you know, I think back and I ask myself, if they hadn't come in and put rides at half the price of what people were used to paying, would consumers have been open to a new way of doing things? And I have to admit, you know, we struggled from the consumer side with the fact that how do we convince consumers to come back to taxi when it's as much as double the price of a rideshare? And, you know, we've had a couple things happen that really I can't take credit for, right? But in terms of everybody knew that at some point the rideshare companies would have to raise prices, right? And that's a combination of things. One is them going public and having to convince, you know, Wall Street that they're going to be profitable at some point. And it's not going to be next year when driver driverless vehicles are going to be ubiquitous, right? Which, you know, I think that's the, it's been next year, every year for a decade and probably will continue to do so for a while. But you also had a lot of regulatory kind of pushback in terms of once the sheen was off, right? These new fancy companies and these disruptors, they realized that drivers need to earn a living wage and they've pivoted somewhat to delivery, but now the delivery drivers are organizing. And so whether it's employee classification, unionization, minimum wage rules, there's been pressure on the driver supply side and on the profitability side. And then you throw in a pandemic and we really found ourselves in a position where the pendulum had overswung to the other direction. You know, are there prices going to come down a little bit? Sure. You know, may the regulators raise taxi rates at some point to help drivers keep up with inflation? Also sure. But there's been this year of a situation where the ride shares have become significantly more expensive. Taxis have saved the same price. 
And with the inability to get a ride, people waiting, you know, hours to get a rideshare ride, there's been that same level of openness that we couldn't have predicted, or certainly not to this degree, that's created an opportunity for taxis to present themselves as a definitively better option, if not in every case, in many cases. Yeah, as a marketer, I believe that you can fix almost any problem with segmentation because there's, you know, there's obviously somebody who wants what you have. You just have to find it. It may it may change your growth perspective, but but there's certainly a market. Do you think that the taxi companies or or curb leading the taxi companies is going to find that in some major metropolitan areas that the taxi business can can retake control and ownership, you know, like where street hailing is still something that people consider. And if you can give that kind of immediacy plus the experience you were talking about, where if you're in a, you know, I live in Dallas and I travel to Phoenix and these big, huge sprawl, far fewer taxis, those are the ones that they'll say, you know what, you guys can have those. I think that's a good way to think about it. There are these heavily urban areas and there are a whole bunch of externalities there. As I mentioned before, traffic and congestion, just the ease of street hailing as one of the options or e-hailing as we call it, but essentially booking it with the app, I think there will become a middle ground scenario, right? I don't know what the future is in terms of vehicle caps and where rideshare heads in the long run and whether you know there are robo-taxis, will they be regulated and operated by traditional taxi companies? Will they be the exclusive province of the rideshare companies? I'm not really certain, but I do think that The way I'm seeing trends now, it's not just a recovery from the pandemic, but I do think that taxis, especially in major metros, are in a better position today than they were pre-pandemic. And I think while I wouldn't guarantee they'll displace rideshare, I I wouldn't go nearly that far. I think the the stasis will be somewhere between, you know, pre-Uber and Lyft and pre-pandemic, right? Which is the markets will, the taxi market will recover to above where it was before the pandemic, but perhaps not where it was originally or not until there's more evolution of, of what I call the use cases, right? You know, where do taxis fit into the broader public transit infrastructure situation? You know, a lot of this first mile, last mile type of, of opportunities. And it may not be taxis as you think about them. It may be a very regulated taxi-like vehicle, but it's a multi-passenger van that is operated in cooperation with the local transit agency as opposed to the taxi regulator or some combination of the two. But I think there'll be a lot of specialized cases where taxis make more sense, you know, cash payment among them, but they make more sense than a rideshare. And I think it's smart for the rideshare companies to think about where they have more competitive advantage from a sustainable perspective. And, and I think I see, you know, places where taxi and rideshare work together. Right. You know, at the end of the day, the customer needs transportation and we're available in some of these multimodal apps. Um, One of them is called Transit. There are a few others that we're working with, but just allow people to plan their transportation and segment it out between a bus to a bus stop and from the bus stop in a taxi to an office or vice versa. I think in the more sprawling areas, yeah, it is it is difficult or more difficult to cover a very large geographic area with a small number of vehicles. And I think it's where it's important to try to figure out how else do you utilize those vehicles in between those halls of the world who just want to get from point A to point B periodically and say that it's still at the end of the day, a vehicle with a driver who can take anything, be it a person, a package, food or whatever from point A to point B. But I think there'll be a little bit more of a merging of different transportation, sorry, transporting 
use cases, right? Whatever that is that you're transporting, but the ability to lay in technology and sophisticated routing algorithms and multimodal planning. And, you know, it could be that, again, you take that taxi to the bus stop. It actually goes from there to pick up a package and go in another direction. I think with the advent of technology in the taxi industry as well, you'll see a lot more interesting combinations of use cases for a driver over the course of a day or a week. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I think that's a really interesting way to see where it's going to go from here. As we wrap up, I ask everybody the same type of question. When it's a a long day and your boss is out of town and you manage to actually get some work done and the day is over, what do you like to listen to? I have this drive home now and I like to listen to public radio, actually. You know, marketplace, um, all things considered. So I really like to sit back and hear a nice, relaxing voice telling me things. And when I get home, I have a four-year-old who will blast whatever he can think of. So my piece is something that is not loud or controlled by a toddler. Well, and I want to be Kai Rizdahl when I grow up. So I'll say, let's do the numbers. And (laughs) um, I'll appreciate uh, the time that you gave us. And uh, thanks very much. Best of luck to you and to Curb. Great. Thanks for having me, Paul. I enjoyed my talk with Jason today. It's an interesting challenge and an uphill climb in a world that's moved on very heavily to ride hailing. But there were some really important takeaways. Number one, previously, technology use was very limited in the taxi space. Curb created one of the first services that made paying for a taxi ride via credit card easy. But what was missing was the aggregation of supply. The industry failed to foresee that eventually there'd be a service that enabled users to book a ride using a much larger pool of drivers and to be able to track the location on an interactive map. Second, the taxi industry was caught off guard by the advent of ride-sharing companies for a variety of reasons. The new competitors had the ability to work differently through the established regulations, and they actively organized and promoted themselves through social media and lobbying. And the high amounts of venture capital allowed them to subsidize prices. These new services empowered people through transparency and flexibility, which ultimately created a sense of control and comfort among users, despite the evolving regulation. Third, ride-sharing companies raised the standards for the industry overall. Suddenly, taxi companies needed to compete by upgrading their technology and improving their customer experience. The changes in the landscape forced companies to think about an integrated platform that would function across taxi providers, putting the control back into the hands of the users and improving prices and ETAs. Fourth, Curb has always been conscious of the role in improving the functions of the entire taxi ecosystem. By identifying specific niche areas of the market where taxis were under-leveraged, Curb has carved out a unique piece of the pie, while reminding people that there are alternative options to the typical rideshare companies. And fifth, many taxi drivers were a very important part of helping their cities stay on their feet during the pandemic. And while there are fewer active drivers in the thick of COVID-19, the number of taxi drivers on the road has rebounded relatively quickly. And unlike rideshare drivers who are often driving as a side hustle, taxi drivers are often full-time and a key part of a city's infrastructure. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To our valued listeners, we'll be taking a short break after season two, and we'll be back with new episodes in early 2022.
Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway, who believes that in order to create the most value for customers, partners, and employees, you need to open everything by securely integrating and moving data across a complex world of old and new technologies.